you're listening to Over the Podcast with Cole for all things to do with the mind for equestrians. Well, how do I introduce my guest for today's podcast? Freeman is a multi-award winning PR advisor. She's a social media expert. She's an ILM level seven executive coach and mentor. That's kind of like having a master's degree in how to coach and mentor people. She's an NLP master practitioner and an NLP master coach. She hosts the award-winning Small and Supercharged podcast and has a best-selling book of the same name, which is absolutely fabulous. And if you are an entrepreneur or a small business owner, you should buy that. She supports small businesses across all different sectors in their overall development and growth with that special focus on PR, social media and marketing. And she's absolutely fabulous. And I'm so delighted and excited to talk to her. Really, really lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very honoured. Oh, oh, the privilege is is absolutely ours. (laughs) I know you work massively with mindset in lots of different ways. But what is important to you about mindset? Why is mindset important? It's a really good question. And I think that. It's in everything that we do, isn't it? It is it's literally in our motivation to get out of bed in the morning. And I think that I've always been aware of it. I've been aware of what makes people successes and not successes, what makes people go out and get things. But I don't think I've really labelled it as mindsets in until fairly recently, I guess, when it's become more of a common phrase, hasn't it? And I yeah. think as well, the thing with mindset is that there's quite a lot of different sort of camps on it. Obviously, I've trained with you, so I'm very, very pro the NLP way. Because to me, it's very logical. It makes perfect sense. It's understandable. It's not sort of, there's some other aspects of kind of mindset area that I'm not such a big fan of that I do think definitely move less into what you can control and, you know, putting your fate in the hands of something else, which I'm not into at all. But I love the the thing with mindset is actually if you understand what's going on, if you listen to what's going on in your head, you can start to analyze that, take that deep dive and create amazing things because it doesn't necessarily improve your ability to do a thing, but it gives you that impetus and that drive to go and find out how to be good at that thing. So it really is woven into everything that we do. Oh, that that's really, I love that definition. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of removing blocks. Mm. Completely, and and barriers to doing what we want to do, and then I suppose there's a maintenance side of it as well, where you maintain a healthy mindset. Absolutely, and it is important to do that. I know people kind of call it self care, and then these labels we put on. And if it's someone like me, the word self care, I think, oh, that's on me. And if you're listeners, you should absolutely practice self care, and you should look after yourself. But I think sometimes some of these labels don't fit different people. But working on your mindset, even just in small ways, having an awareness, having some time just to process things can be can be really transformational and can make huge changes in your in your brand, in your business, in your life. I think one thing I was just thinking of, I know a lot of your listeners are horsey, but I used to work with horses properly. 
And we had some amazing horses on the yard that were incredibly, incredibly talented. Some were not particularly talented, but had the most brilliant mind. And some were incredibly talented, but didn't. And if you can see it with an animal like that, they were just, the way they were, it was just not positive. They didn't try and help you out. They didn't do things. And when you can see it like that, the horses that always actually had the less talent, but the better brain, the better temperament, the better attitude, always achieved far more than the hugely talented ones. They're much more reliable. They produce consistent results. And it works with people. I think it really does. You can have all the talent in the world, but if your mindset's against you, you won't be you won't be fulfilling your goals because your your mind simply won't allow you to do it. But the great thing is you can control it and you can take charge and you can change your mindset. I think it's probably slightly more challenging with a horse to get them to do that, but we have got the ability to do it. I love that. I love that analogy because it makes it so clear who's going to succeed in life really, isn't it? That mm-hmm. with the mindset, you can be oh, this is going to be an awful label, but kind of average, you know, whereas you may be hugely talented, hugely intellectual, a real, you know, go-getter who's always achieved. But if your mindset slips, then the other person's probably going to win the race, aren't they? Absolutely. And I think it works with everything. I've always had this thing from when I was very, very young, that even if I wasn't the brightest in the arena, I could outwork anyone. And I believe that now it's very arrogant to say, but I don't necessarily think I'm the brightest at anything, but I know I can put the work in. I know I have got that mindset that will allow me to really put the graft in and be as good, if not better. And I will keep going sometimes like a bullet gate. And I just think it's important to know that because then it doesn't matter almost where you start. There were much brighter people than me at school, but I still, you know, I still absolutely held my own and did well. And there were some people that were much brighter that couldn't be bothered and did a whole lot worse. And that kind of moves through to every area of your life, doesn't it? I think it's quite empowering to know that that bit doesn't matter. It's what you do with it. It's how you process it and how you take that forward. And it carries on filtering through your whole life as well. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it means that we can all be the best we can be if we just know how to tap into that mindset. So you work a lot on social media. <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> yeah. Social media queen. And also <laughs> other types of media as well. I mean, we're always hearing you on Radio 5 and sometimes on the BBC and GB News and ITV. Anyone else? <laughs> been fun it's been fun I mean if you could see me now with my damp hair that's gone wild you wouldn't think but I do put slight effort in yes so the media and and in particular social media do you think that's harmful to people's mindset do you think we should I think it can be off and turn the screens off more or or do you think, I think it can positive? be sorry go on no go on <laughs> And um, I think it can be massively harmful. I think particularly if you're not in a great place yourself, it can be absolutely awful because you can see things that aren't negative, but the way that we process them is negative. So if something very difficult has happened in your life, if that's kind of taken you off your A game, you can't do what you want to, and people are out there achieving amazing things, that can actually feel awful to you. And if you were having a conversation with that person, they were fully aware of your situation. That's not necessarily something that they would share with you or not in that way. Now, it's not their fault they're doing it because why should they not share? 
But for you, it can be a really difficult position to be in. And equally, if people are just straight up horrible, that's a, that's a really horrible position to be in. So it can be awful. And I will absolutely admit that freely. It can also be incredible. It can be incredibly supportive. You can find the most amazing tribes of people. You can find real life connection. It can give you connection as well, because I think we know, you know think during COVID and during you know, the lockdowns, people really lost that connection. And whilst online is not the same as in person, it did provide a huge amount of support and comfort for people. So there are definitely two sides of the coin. And it is what you make of it to a degree. And it's also how you learn to control it, how you learn to control what you consume, how long you spend on it, who you follow and how you deal with perhaps negativity or perhaps positivity when you're not in a great place for it. Yeah, that's that's really key, isn't it? When you're not in a great place and everyone else's life is, well, in social media world, it's all going wonderful. Everything's working out for them. They're on a sunny beach with a big smile. How do you think, What or what do you think is the best way for people to cope with either negative comments or those overly positive posts that drive you around the bend? <laughs> Both really good questions. I think one thing is to appreciate that when people put that moment on, and I know I know I bleed on about this, like broken record, but they put that moment on when they're smiling and the world's going well. It probably takes about a second to take a photograph. They're not going to put on the fact that their horse stood on them, their child threw their breakfast across the kitchen, that their car's got a flat tyre, that this happened, that they've had a row with their partner, a row with their boss. Most people don't put that stuff on. So what you're saying is, seeing is that split second of someone's life they've decided to show with you. And what we can do is then compare our entire lives to that split second. That's not fair on you because no one's life is like that all the time. So that's a really important thing to remember, I think, moving forward, that that's just what we do. And that's not a criticism because when I'm putting on a picture of social media, I try and do one where I don't look, I don't like I do now. Now I've got slightly less wild hair. The lighting's better. I've got a nice background. We try and make ourselves look the best we can when we're showing up like that. So it's not a criticism, but more something to be aware of. I think with people that are overly excitable and overly happy, I don't think we should try and, and stop that. But I think using the mute button is a really good idea. You don't have to mute people forever. But it's just if you're not in a place to take that on, you can control what you see. So using the mute button is a really good shout or just not going on social media as much. And if it's someone that's a personal friend of yours that they would perhaps expect comments because you've got that relationship explain it to them. If they're a good friend that you think it is, they will completely understand. If anything, I'll probably encourage you to mute and move on. And if it's just people that are being foul, just delete, block those people because they have got no place in your world. I'm not terribly tolerant with that kind of behavior because it's taking up your your valuable time, which is the one resource we can't replenish. So it can really get under your skin. It can make you feel awful but I think being really quick with that block delete button, report them if they're being really foul and they're breaking, you know, the rules is important. But I also wouldn't be against muting people that you just think, I can't handle this. And I guess another extension of that is if there are people that aren't particularly friends of yours, but you follow and you just think, you know what, I'm just not into this. You can mute them as well. You can unfollow them. Don't take it on yourself that you followed them forever and therefore you must be subjected to all their content. You can mute if you don't want to unfollow on Instagram. You can unfollow on Facebook. You've got control over what you consume. And I think that's something we all need to be really aware of and do a lot more. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then we don't feel like we're being bombarded, but we've controlled what we see. That's really powerful, isn't it? Rather than letting life happen to you on your phone or whatever, you're taking the reins and you're you're controlling it. So what I was going to ask you about then from that is what do you think is the friendliest platform for, for horsey people? I do think Instagram is good. I like Instagram. I like looking at people's pretty pictures of their horses and their houses and things like that. And I do think there is a lovely community there. I do think Facebook can also be really good, particularly from a group point of view. If you're part of a really good group of people that get you, there's some really fun horsey groups on Facebook that are full of the laughs. And that can be really lovely as well. But probably just on the face value, I think Instagram. But if you get a good group on Facebook, I think that's a really nice place to be. Yeah. Yeah. I really like Instagram. I think it's a friendly place. I do. I do. It's much, It seems much lighter generally than some other platforms. Yeah. And none of the comments get too heavy that I've noticed. I mean, I know people are trolled and everything, but they're trolled everywhere. But it does seem that most people are just clicking and liking. They're, they're not, not a huge amount of comments and the comments because you've got to put effort in (laughs) yes you really have (laughs) so there's not a lot of people posting negative stuff on Instagram from my perspective I think no I would agree with that I think the most negative comments I've ever had were on Facebook but I did get a death threat through Instagram so swings and roundabouts wow Oh, it was a while ago. It wasn't a serious one. She says flippantly. I should say, if you're listening to this and you get death threats, like I did genuinely call the police because it's not nice to have that kind of thing in your inbox. And there are things you can take and there are actions you should take. I'm not, I'm only being flippant because it was so long ago. I was quite upset about it at the time, but I agree with you in in general terms. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I didn't know you were going to surprise me with a death threat one. (laughs) I'm not giving you a death threat. I wouldn't do that. So a lot of people, and I think Instagram is, is again, another case in point where this is really obvious. A lot of people are brand ambassadors. And why not? Why not? If you've got a favorite black brand and you you really love them and you think everybody should love them, then I think that's super. How do you go about even approaching a brand? If you're just if you're a rider, you're not a professional rider. Is there still room for you in that kind of world? Yeah. And I think actually what you said initially is the kind of blueprint for becoming a brand ambassador. Genuinely like the brand, show up for the brand, support the brand that you want to be a brand ambassador for. Because if you genuinely love them, that shouldn't be too hard. And then as a brand, if you're looking, you're going to look at people that actually show you support, look at those that tag you in relevant photographs. And I don't worry if you're an amateur amateur professional because some professionals don't do a good job on social media at all. Some amateurs, and I mean amateurs in people that don't do horses for a living, don't ride for a living, do a really, really good job to the point that they actually do make a living from horses, but they make a living as an influencer because they do such a great job of content creation. So don't let that be a block for you. But think about what you want, but most importantly, think about what you can give. Think about the brands that you're proud, you would be proud to represent, that you would like to work with, because you're tying your brand to them as much as they're tying their brand to you. So think about that hard. Don't flip between brands. 
you know, you like one on Monday and a different one on Tuesday and a different one on Wednesday, and they're all conflicting. If you're, if that's genuinely you, brilliant, but then don't go to one of them and say, oh, your products are the best in the world. Because if the brand looks at your account, they can see you've got this sort of slightly, not particularly brand loyal, which isn't a problem. Like you do you, but if you're asking for somebody to invest time, energy, money into you, you would kind of expect a certain level of loyalty. But no, I think what you said, genuinely like the brand, put out good quality content, engage with their content, tag them in relevant posts. And that will allow you to start, if you want to, to build a relationship with them and see if there are any opportunities to work together on a deeper level. And do you need to have masses of followers as a brand rather than an influencer? No, no, you don't. And the key is a really engaged following. Now, realistically, a brand isn't going to necessarily support you if you've got 100 followers, because when we look at it with a brand point of view, we're looking at the increased reach we can get and the more eyeballs we can get on product. So if you've got 100 followers, well, there's a lot of talk that generally social media platforms, Instagram, say, shows your content to 10% of people and then expands that out. So if you've got 100 followers, that's 10 people. What are 10 people worth, particularly if the brand has got 20,000 followers? Probably not that much. But if you have got, I don't know, five, 10,000 followers who are really engaged, who are really interested in what you're doing and you make good content, then that could be very interesting for a brand. So don't limit yourself and say, oh, I've only got 5,000. Actually, I know some accounts with 5,000 followers who do a brilliant job, who make really good content and that brands do work with. Oh, super. So what if somebody wanted to go on from that, they've they've done the brand ambassadorships and they're really interested now in becoming an influencer because that's a big jump, isn't it? There's a big difference between the two. Yes. So brand ambassador is usually connected to a specific brand. Influencers can also be brand ambassadors, but you'll often find that there is a fee attached because they've got such a significant following. You'll often find that kind of true influencers, the quality of their content is much better because maybe they've got external photographers, external videographers. There's more of a, you know, a story arc. It's a different level of content creation. And I think that would be where I would look to to improve if I was wanting to go from a brand ambassador to an influence or to take it on as a job. I think, okay, well, how can I improve what I do? A lot of that would be the content creation side. So what courses could I take? How what could I upskill? Could I shadow someone who's brilliant at this and learn what they're doing and just start to improve my craft, I guess, as well as starting to even do some things for free for people to say, well, actually, that's a really good product. I think I could show that off well. I could do this, you could use this and start to essentially grow your portfolio because what you're doing if you're an influencer and you're charging for that or you're asking for product, I think it's important to treat it like that, to understand more about how it all works because you can put together better, more relevant pitches and the brands are likely to be happy with your work, which is likely to snowball and keep that momentum going. Super. Okay. So let's say somebody doesn't want to be a brand ambassador. They don't want to be an influencer but they still want to get out of their nine to five job and they'd like to do something horsey. So they'd like to go into some kind of equestrian business. Is it a good time to do that? I think there's never a good time in that there's never a good time when we're making big changes. It's very easy to talk ourselves out of it, isn't there? And whether that's going into the equestrian industry or anything else, I think there's we can always see it as a bad time. 
I think there are lots of opportunities in equestrian. I know the BHS have got a fund to help people get back into horses. I'll be honest, I've completely forgotten the name of that, but I heard all about it. It was a brilliant idea. There are also jobs that aren't necessarily working on a yard or working with horses day to day, but perhaps working in office or production or marketing for equestrian businesses. So you get to use your horsey knowledge. I think what I would do is if, or if you wanted to work for yourself, of course, there's lots of options there. And if you are looking to grow your own business, I think you know, it's as good a time as any, but we can also take calculated risks. So rather than one day walking in and chucking your resignation letter at your boss, you could start it as a side hustle. And that's a very American term, but you could, you know, you could start looking at what you want to do and perhaps doing that on evenings and weekends. You could start to grow that side of your business to the point that actually, if you did make the jump away from your normal employment, it wouldn't be such a big, terrifying leap. You could maybe look at how much money you think you need to sustain yourself, however long it would think you think it would take to get your business up and start saving that. So there are ways that you can mitigate that risk. And I think that's a good that's a good policy. Generally, we don't always have to go all in on things. We can just test the water, experiment and refine a process until it gets much better to just make it a lot less risky. And it's I mean, it's quite crowded, isn't it, as a job kind of area Equest, I know I'm being very, very broad, equestrian business, equine business. Do you think that somebody who is wanting to do that, wanting to get out of the rat race, do you think they need a really unique idea? Or do you think there's room for more physios and more body workers, you know, more, I don't know, equestrian business assistants and, and all that kind of thing? I think there's room for people who are really, really exceptional at what they do in every space. I don't think there's a lot of room for people who are mediocre in a lot of spaces at the moment. And I think sometimes that's a mistake that people can do. I do think it is important to have a unique offering. Whatever you're doing, you do need a point of difference because when you're saying to people why they should come to you over somebody else, if you're exactly the same as everybody else, there's nothing that stands out. So it makes your marketing and your promotion so much harder. So I would definitely be looking at how to develop those unique skills. I think there is space in a lot of areas. I think some are incredibly crowded and not ones that I would want to go anywhere near just because there's a lot of similarity in there and not enough difference. But equally, if you rock up with a different take on something, then you still got a a really good chance of making an impact. So I'm going to plug your book. You didn't didn't ask me to do this, but it seems really apt to mention it. So it's small and supercharged, available on Amazon. And it's really nice because it's it's a really nice, easy read. It's not heavy going or anything like that, but it's all about running a business and doing the PR marketing on a bit of a budget, isn't it? So it's not employing somebody to do your social media or employing someone to do all your admin. It's how to do it yourself with very little money. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about it? And you've done a really good job. Yeah, it is. It's the whole time I've been working in, because I started off doing kind of a done for you PR service for people. And as that's built, I do a lot more coaching and mentoring now. So a lot less of the done for you service. But one of the things that I've always been known for and continue to be known for is that I don't know whether it's the way that my mind works or what it is, but I don't really like spending people's money. And when I was a marketing manager, that's a really strange attribute for a marketing manager to look at a budget and go, no, I don't need that much. It's a a really weird one. But I always liked looking at a problem and looking at lots of different angles I could attack it at. 
So I didn't put all my eggs in one basket because that scares the living daylights out of me. So I would be like, right, this is the thing. This is what we need to promote or market or do something with. How are we going to do it? We could do this here, this here, this here. We could do this. We could do this. And I would look to have a real 360 take on things. And a lot of those things would be free. They would take some work, but they would be. Some would be like short-term wins, some would be longer-term wins. And I really enjoyed that. But the thing is, it, even the expensive bits I did did not cost a lot considering how much stuff costs. So I just realized le- less and less that I like spending, I don't like spending ad budgets. I think they can be massively useful. And I think, you know, a good ad can be brilliant, but it's not where my strong area lies. I much prefer the organic stuff. I prefer the stuff where you have to really think around a problem. And as sort of social media grew up, brand ambassadors, influencers, obviously PR that I've worked with for years, even SEO, like getting your website optimized, newsletters, all these things can be done on a shoestring. And this doesn't mean you have to do them on a shoestring forever, but particularly if you're a startup or a smaller business, you know you need to be doing all of these things, but you don't have the budget. But you can start. And then when the budget is available, if you need to invest that, you can. But if you don't start, you can't build up the money to do it. So I thought, well, actually, I'm really strong on how to do things on very, very little. And I wanted to write about it and share with other people so they could just start making progress and not be under this illusion that they needed to spend a huge amount of money to start or to make an impact because they really don't. It is more work this way, but if you don't have the budget, it's very, very doable. Yeah, yeah. And sort of launching in with a big magazine ad or something like that. I mean, <laughs> that costs the earth, doesn't it? And and like you say, you may not have the budget and it may not be what your business needs or wants at that time. So, no, yeah. I mean, some ads would probably be a very a small business's entire marketing budget. And OK, it might be an amazing ad, but that's one month or one week. What are you going to do for the rest of the time? Well, if you've spent all your money on that one thing and it hasn't generated what you want, you're in a bit of trouble. But if you are able to do things on no or low budget, you can test more things to see what works to then spend your money that you have where you know is going to be more effective, which is a much better strategy. Yeah, yeah. A super little handbook, I think. And I think anyone who is just starting out or in fact anyone who's in the sort of growth phase of their business rather than the plateau I I mean a plateau that they actually want rather than (laughs) yeah (laughs) but I think it's a lovely little book and I'll put it into the comments so that people can go and have a look at it and if they're interested in their own business or any side of PR and so on then they can have a little look at that and you do mention influencers and the like don't you I do. Yeah, I do. It's been it's been over a year since I've written it. Now. <laughs> I mean, but yes, I absolutely do. I cover a lot in that book. It's it, it does cover a lot of ground in quite a short space of time. Which brings me on to, drumroll, your new book. Oh, we're a little way off that. But yes, <laughs> I've been writing it busily all morning. And that's my project for well, for the foreseeable, really. But yes, my new book is is being written at the moment. It will be published by Bloomsbury, which I'm beyond excited about. And yeah, I'm very excited about that. And what's it all about? It's all about, it's kind of a continuation in some ways of the other book, but it is looking at common blocks that stop people from fulfilling their goals and dreams. And it can be business-related, 
it can be personal related because all of the stuff applies to both. And I've got lots of stories woven in there from entrepreneurs, from people who, you know, I've got venture capitalists, I've got all sorts of people in there, but these people who have been there, done it, kind of worked their way up, nothing's been handed to them. And they are very kindly sharing their stories. I've also got somebody in there called Tracy Cole. <laughs> I know, I know. I feel very privileged because I've seen some of the circle of people that you've invited. <laughs> You're very, very welcome. I'm very shadow. <laughs> not at all. I'm very grateful to have your input in the book. <laughs> Super. So I suppose as well, if it's about lifting blocks, it could equally be read by an equestrian who's thinking about how they are self-sabotaging, what their limiting beliefs might be. So would would you recommend it for, for basically anyone? Genuinely, yes. I mean, obviously I'm busy writing at the moment, but a lot of the things I'm writing about, I identify in lots of people, whether they're they have their own businesses, whether they're horsey, whether they're not horsey, things that you hear, things that mentally stop you your progress, obvious things that stop your progress completely. It applies to businesses it applies to equestrians it applies to genuinely I can't think of anybody who wouldn't benefit from reading the book and I know that sounds arrogant but it is true because I'm reading it I'm working on it at the moment and I've I've been so lucky to be able to speak to so many incredible people and learn from them and I've been able to distill a lot of that information these really awe-inspiring stories from very normal people who have gone on to create these amazing brands and businesses and do amazing things and actually when you read this you think what what could I achieve if I put my mind to it and have you I don't want to do any spoilers or anything like that because I know you're you're 14,000 words in as we speak aren't you you just told me 14,571 let's not forget the 71 (laughs) so I know it's it's not anywhere near completed even the first draft but have you from your work so far, have you gleaned any really great insights, something that you could share with us? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've I've learned so far is that we're very much all in this together. It's, you know, we, it's very easy to put people on a pedestal and think, gosh, they are so amazing or gosh, they must have had it so easy. And when you start to look at the situation or how lucky they are, and you start to look at the situation, you start to do that deep dive and you start to unpack what they've been through or how they've achieved things, you you realize that we really are all in this together. We should be using these people as inspiration and proof of what's possible. And that's the biggest thing. I think it makes these amazing brands, these incredible people, a lot more human when you put the time into reading their stories and and looking at their advice and their tips that you know, I've been so grateful to the people who have kind of given that time. But yeah, I think that's that's definitely my biggest takeaway so far. But there's there's plenty of others in the book. You must get the book when it comes out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, I don't want you to reveal all as it were. But you must also have come across stories where people, okay, they weren't silver spoon. They weren't handed it on a plate. They didn't inherit a business necessarily. You must also have come across people where they started the business, but maybe they failed in some way. You know, either the business crashed, maybe their first idea was not as good as their latest idea, or maybe they 
just did something a little bit too extravagant, like we were talking about the budgets and things before. So it isn't that they've had like an easy ride, is it? That they've just flowed through life and just gone up and up and up in terms of their income and their their business expansion. Do you, do you get that feeling from people that they have been through the blocks and the limitations? Hugely. And I think if, you know, if anyone's interested generally, if you think about any entrepreneur, anyone that is very visible in the public eye, just do a proper poke into their story. Read about how they got to where they are. Because even if they are the head of a multi-million or even billion pound company, the chances are they will have had some moments on that journey which would have been crushing, that they would have lost a lot or they're on the verge of losing a lot. And many of them have started businesses that haven't worked out and they've gone on to secondary businesses. Some have had, you know, issues with co-founders and that hasn't worked out. But when you read all these stories from lo- I mean, lots and lots of different people, you realize that everyone is very similar, but also you start to see patterns in what separates those who succeed from those that don't. And there are loads of things, as you will find out in the book. But <laughs> I think one thing is a really important thing is how we do look at failure whether we let it defeat us or whether we let it power us on and provide extra information, extra insight to do our next thing. And whether we let, I guess, a fear of failure stop us. Even, I mean, some people have that. I know we've talked about this before, but even when they haven't had a failure, the worry about it can just stop people. And I think, yeah, if you if you did some research, it is interesting because I can't think of anyone that I have read about or spoken to or read books from or listened to podcasts of that have had an easy ride of it. Yeah. I, l- I love that you've touched on fear of failure because that's huge, isn't it? And it almost doesn't matter that we can sit in our nice cozy houses and away from work for a moment. And you, you sort of read that there is no such thing as failure. There's only feedback and you think, oh, that's really good. And then when the reality hits and something doesn't work out for you, that is usually for most people massive, isn't it? And we could be talking about sport or business or personal life. To almost claw your way back up is really painful. Do you have any tips on how somebody can either shift their perspective or reframe that that so-called failure? I think the reframe is brilliant. It's a superb NLP technique. And Again, we've put a label on it, we've called it a reframe, but we can all do it, whether you are, I mean, I guess if you're listening to the podcast, you are quite pro NLP. And this is, the thing I do is when something goes wrong, and it, you know, regularly does, not massive things, but you know, life goes wrong, think, what have I learned? And I try and move as quickly as possible to, to what have I learned? This can be, there's a thing a few months ago, I spent a long, a long time speaking with somebody actually about them contributing to the book and it was very very positive and I put quite a lot of time and effort into it and then I got someone else got involved and I was oh no they're far too busy for that and I was furious because of the time I put into it not because of the outcome so I thought what have I learned well to be honest in this case I've learned not to touch that person with a barge pole again because of the wasted time but actually that was probably a good lesson because I think sometimes we have the kind of sunk cost fallacy don't we? we put so much time into something and therefore we must pursue it when it became challenging because I wasn't getting the responses, 
I would get one set of responses from one person and one set from another. I persisted for longer than I should have done. So from that, I've actually learned that when you've got a really amazing list of people to interview and someone starts messing you around, move on. Because the time it took me to get to the, they're far too busy, I could have probably interviewed four people in that time, which would be much more productive for me and the book. So I try really hard to take those failures or disappointing moments or frustrating moments in a, what have I learned? What can I learn about this that I can apply next time? Sometimes it takes a few few goes to learn it properly, but I do think that is the most healthy way of trying to process a failure. And it also gives you more impetus to just crack on and have a go because you know that you either win, so it either goes well, or there will be a learning point there you can take to the next iteration. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important. I think that's important for life, isn't it? In every aspect of life. That but I th- I think it's quite hard until you you press yourself to do it. So you keep thinking to yourself, what can I learn? What can I learn? Like you say, it All doesn't you might have an immediate learning, but you keep asking yourself, what can I learn? What can I learn? What you know, ad nauseum until you're like, oh for God's sake, I can learn not to do that again. <laughs> yeah, and it's something I say to the kids actually, you know, if something goes wrong, okay, what have you learned from that? And I think it is a really important, it is an important thing, but sometimes you you do have to have a bit of a swear and a curse or a cry if it's gone really badly and then go, okay, what have I learned? No, it's not kind of denying those emotions, but it's trying to move it into a productive space, I guess, as quickly as you can. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, Ria, it has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you as always we can find you in loads of places, can't we? All over Facebook and the internet. Where can we find you specifically? Instagram's a really good one. So I, Rhea Freeman PR on Instagram. I'm also on LinkedIn if you're a business person. Luckily, I've got a weird name. So if it's R-H-E-A, like the Greek goddess, or the small ostrich. It's been assured I've been, I'm named off the Greek goddess though. Rhea Freeman, I'm on, yeah, Instagram. I'm Rhea Freeman PR there. Facebook, LinkedIn. I mean, I'm on X and threads, but I don't spend a lot of time there. My website's reafreemanpr.co.uk. Okay. You have a lovely group on, well, you've got two groups on Facebook. You've got the Small and Supercharged, which is a free group, isn't it, for business owners. And then you've got the Paid For Mastermind where people get a bit more, don't they, for their book? They do. They get lots more. They get marketing masterclasses, social media training, social media critiques, social media ideas, a live Q&A every week, opportunities. When I get them, they go in there. They get mindset masterclasses from this, this person called Tracy Cole, which are always really interesting and definitely always make me think. And the community is awesome in there. We've got a great bunch of people and there's lots of kind of opportunities amongst each other as well. It's, it, from a user's point of view, it's really supportive and it's it's kind of like networking, isn't it? I feel like I know these people. I don't, I don't even know what half of them look like, but I know their names. <laughs> yeah, I like their tone. I think that's always quite funny when you meet someone in real life and they're chatting to you and you're like, definitely know you, but I don't know your face. And it's because yeah. they speak like they talk or you've seen them on a live or something like that. Yeah, definitely. That reminds me as well. We can find you at Your Horse Live, can't we, in November? I am. I'm on the stage at 10 o'clock on Friday and 9.45 on Saturday and Sunday talking about the Your Horse Live brand ambassador challenge in association with Bloomfield. So come on over to that. I'll also be spending quite a lot of time on the beta stand. So 
usually they've got really good sweets. That's not just where I'm there. But I had an unfortunate instant where I ate too many love hearts and I could actually feel them bubbling in my stomach. So top tip, don't do that. But they do have good sweets. <laughs> they do, actually. They do. They, they I do. can I can confirm that. Beta always have good sweets on their stand. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <you> Claire. <laughs> a few kind of dummies and and mock injured riders and yeah, and die will be there (laughs) yeah you can ask die your questions there'll be a smashed up hat you can talk about (laughs) knops and how to make sure you're not accidentally giving your horses prohibitive substances which is actually much easier than you think things like coffee and chocolate but claire is the expert on that i'm not going to i'm not going to misquote her on that but (laughs) there's loads you can do on the beta stand including eat the sweets Super duper. Thanks ever so much. I'm sure all the listeners will be tagging you and getting onto your socials and maybe even meeting you in real life. Poor, poor souls. And if you do meet me in real life, spoiler alert, I am quite tall. So you don't need to tell me that. (laughs) Yeah, told that a lot. Oh, you are tall. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm the tall one. We'll be able to see you. You will be able to see me. Thanks very much. Take Take care. care.